If you want to turn with me um, in the Pew Bibles there, um, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, um, starting there today, and that's page 671 of the, the Pew Bibles there. Ecclesiastes 5, um, we're going to be starting at verse 8, and we're going to be reading right through to chapter 6, verse 12. Um, <clears throat> I'm really going to be focusing today on the rest of chapter 5, um, but I think it's good for us to, to read the whole passage. Um, I'll be dealing with chapter 6 in about a paragraph, so um, when you read it, you can, you can decide how I'll, how I'll manage that. But let's, let's share in God's word together as we read um, from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting at verse 8. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there is nothing left for him. Naked, a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. This too is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Then I realize that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given him, for this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. I have seen another evil under the sun and it weighs heavy, heavily on men. God gives a man wealth, possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing his heart desires, but God does not enable him to enjoy them and a stranger enjoys them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man, 
even if he lives a thousand years twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity. Do not all go to the same place. All man's efforts are for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. What advantage has a wise man over a fool? What does a poor man gain by knowing how to conduct himself before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Whatever exists has already been named, and what a man is has been known. No man can contend with one who is stronger than he. The more the words, the less the meaning. And how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a man in life during the few and meaningless days he passes through like a shadow? Who can tell him what will happen under the sun after he is gone? Amen. Um, So you may remember the, the title that we've given this series is Enjoy Your Life. Uh, And today brings us to the the halfway point of this book of Ecclesiastes. And I I don't know if you've been around a lot over the last few weeks. Um, I don't know if you've uh, heard many of these sermons, if you've managed to catch too many of them. But I wonder, are you thinking, have they given this series the right title? We've heard a fair bit from this teacher now, this uh, Solomon or or Solomon-like character. And the majority of the time, and certainly in this passage, he seems to just be given off about stuff. He's complaining about the state of the world, how unjust it is, how unfair it is, how seemingly random and uncaring it is. There's, There's not an awful lot of enjoyment or joy to be had in much of what he's been saying so far. So why have we called this series, Enjoy Your Life? Well, you've maybe picked up by this stage some of what is going on in this book. The teacher or the the preacher, he's speaking to the, the Israelites. He's speaking to God's people, the people who were meant to be living in covenant relationship with their God. A God who constantly offered them and pointed them towards life in a fallen world of death. And God's people, they were choosing to to live not for God, but to try and find fulfillment and joy in all sorts of other places. In all sorts of things that this broken world has to offer. Pleasure, status, career, wisdom. The teacher and the author's purpose, especially in the first six chapters of this book, is to break down some of those pillars that we're tempted to build our life on. To show the people of God, which includes us sitting here today, that it is utter foolishness to build our lives on anything other than God. And he's been using two key phrases as we've gone along to guide us on that journey. The first is is that Hebrew word we've we've heard before, uh, hevel. It's translated in the NIV as meaningless. In the ESV, it's translated as vanity. It's one of those words that, that means a lot. And it's quite hard to nail it down to one English word, which is actually quite fitting 
Because in reality, what it really means is, is that which is frustrating, confusing, intangible. The best way I've seen it described, and, and Christoph said this, I think, in the first week, he described it as being like smoke or vapor. It looks solid and sure, but when you grab at it, you realize there's really nothing there. The word hevel appears 38 times in this book of Ecclesiastes. As the teacher attempts to, to, to blow away the smoke of the things that we put in God's place and to show us that without God, there, there is really nothing there. And to put our trust in those things really is like chasing after the wind. The second phrase that he uses a lot occurs 28 times throughout the book. We've seen it once or twice in the passage we've just read. It's those words, under the sun. It was last week um, when Jim was speaking that I was struck by, by just how earthy a book Ecclesiastes is. And I think that's on purpose. The teacher is speaking to people who are meant to have their eyes on higher things, but instead are placing their focus on the things of this earth, the things under the sun. So the teacher decides to get down under the sun as well and speak in very earthy terms to show that, that living this life without God doesn't lead to enjoyment or fulfillment, but it leads to meaningless, meaninglessness, misery, and ultimately death. So far, the, as we've said, the teacher has been speaking about pleasure, status, career, amongst other things, and how under the sun on this fallen, broken world, when put in God's place, these things are smoke. They may look like life, but they are impossible to keep a hold of. They're impossible to control. They're often hurtful, and eventually they will let us down and destroy us. In today's passage, the, the teacher turns his eyes towards wealth, another pillar that people try to build their lives on. And he seeks to show how, like just like the others, how incredibly shaky the foundations are if this is where we're going to try and find our fulfillment and our joy. Um, by this stage, I'm sure you'll know that I'm a fan of quoting from um, movies or um, 80s music. Uh, but I've decided that now that I've been accepted into union and I'm going to train to be a proper minister, um, I need to sort of class up my illustrations a wee bit. So today I'm going to show you a Renaissance painting. I was waiting for a, ooh, no, okay. Um, but several people that I've been, I've been reading this week have, have pointed me to this painting and I think it's, it's helpful. Um, it's called the, the Money Lender and His Wife. It's a, a painting by a guy called Quentin Metzis. Um, it was painted in Antwerp in 1514. Um, at that time, Antwerp had just become the, the economic powerhouse of Europe. And he painted this as a response to what he saw as the falling away of people from devotion to God and uh, their focus instead being put on wealth and prosperity. In the painting, you can see a, a moneylender at work. He's counting his takings, and beside him sits his wife. 
She's meant to be reading her Bible or a, a devotional book of some kind. Um, you may not be able to see it on the picture there, but um, on the book there is a picture of, of Mary and Jesus. But instead of being devoted to her devotions, she's become distracted and enthralled by the money. It's drawing her away from where her focus should have been. And this painting could, could easily be entitled Ecclesiastes 5, because here the teacher is also seeing people lose their focus on God and become instead completely focused on wealth and prosperity. And he wants to show them the results of living this way and having no regard for God. In chapter 5, verses 8 to 17, the teacher shows that when our eyes are focused on money above all else, it leads not to an enjoyable life, but to the opposite, a miserable life. In verses 8 and 9, he talks about, about love of money leading to a miserable world. Our world is, is built on economics. Countries and people are ranked in terms of their wealth as if it's the, the be-all and end-all of everything. But every system that this world operates, whether it's, it's capitalist or communist, whether it's a kingdom or a dictatorship or a democracy, love of and pursuit of wealth makes them all unjust. There are rich and poor, privileged and unprivileged at every level, and people who are striving and striving for more for themselves and happy to hurt others to get it. And what about us? Members of a, of a different kingdom, followers of a king who has been unbelievably generous to us, who is completely just, who shows incredible mercy who has chosen those of us whom he has welcomed into his kingdom to share in his fullness. Not as, as lowly subjects or servants, although in the kingdom of God that would still be an incredible place to be, but as his adopted children through Christ, heirs of our Father God, with all the rights and privileges that that brings. So are we, are we caught up in the workings of this world, striving to get more and more, to make it to the top, to have a comfortable life? Or do we live out our citizenship of the kingdom of God here on earth? Do we show generosity like our king? Do we stand against true injustice like our king, even when it costs us? Are we known as people who show love, mercy, and forgiveness to those this world has deemed worthless? We live in a world where the building up of wealth is seen as of major importance, regardless of the hurt or the injustice that it can cause. But the teacher wants to show us that not only does focusing on wealth hurt others, but it also hurts those of us who build it up. Verse 10 talks about our miserable appetite. Does having money make us happy or content? 
The world of celebrity shows us almost every day that it's more likely to do the opposite. What it does do is it makes us crave more and more. It makes us discontent. It can start small. How many of us have said, you know, I don't want, I don't want to be a millionaire. I don't want to have loads of money. I just want enough to get the house sorted or, or to get a new car or, or to do that wee job. And then we'll, I'll be happy. Would you? It's very easy for that, that sense of discontentment, for that, that longing for that little bit more to grow in us. And it's incredibly destructive. It's destructive to our peace and it's destructive to our relationship with God, the one who gives us all that we have. J.D. Rockefeller was, was one of the wealthiest Americans who has ever lived. He was a, a deeply religious man who gave millions and millions away to church and to charity, but he still struggled with his love for money. When asked how much money would be enough for him, the man who had more than he could ever hope to spend in several lifetimes famously said, just a little bit more. This condition that, let's face it, affects all of us in one way or another in this Western world has been dubbed affluenza, the disease of, of wanting affluence, of always wanting just that little bit more. Even those of us who, who are incredibly thankful for what we have can so easily slip into that unhealthy appetite of thinking we will be satisfied if only we had a little bit more. And the miserable state of the lover of money doesn't stop there. In verse 11, the teacher shows us the impact love of money can have on our relationships. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. If you're someone who splashes around the cash, you'll always have plenty of friends. People who, who very quickly disappear once the money runs done. You think of the story of the prodigal son. He gets the money from his father. He goes off to a faraway land and he parties and he's surrounded by people, all these people who want to be with him when he parties. And then the money goes and they go too. And he's left alone. I don't know if that's a story that you've had in your life. don't know if that's somebody you can think of in your family. That's certainly the story of, of members of my family. They gave up on their true friends and their true family and they went off. And they had it all. They spent it all. And they were left totally alone. Many celebrities, they talk about losing touch with the people they grew up with, their families, their childhood friends, because they become suspicious. Suspicious that they're only staying their friend for what they can get out of them. And they can no longer trust that the friendship is genuine. And so they're left surrounded by all of this stuff, but very few real people. Monetarily wealthy, but relationally poor. Love of money makes us suspicious of others, overly protective of what we have, and liable to be taken advantage of. And the teacher doesn't end there. Verse 12, he goes on to talk about how it gives us miserable rest. The one who works hard, earns their pay, whether little or much, 
and is content with where God has placed them will sleep well. But the one who loves money, who lacks contentment, who always wants more, who is suspicious of others' intentions, who lives a life of of affluence, expending little energy and eating richly, they will find very little sleep and even less rest. Derek Kidner, in in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, he talks about some of the ways our Western world bears this out. He mentions a number of them, but one that sort of caught my eye. He talks about the whole rise of gym culture. The whole idea that we pay out large amounts of money to go to a place and do the manual work that we no longer do to try and undo some of the damage that money, this life of affluence and ease, is doing to our bodies. We spend money to try and mitigate the effects of money. And finally then, in in verses 13 to 17, he, he sums up all of this by showing that love of money leads to a miserable life. We throw ourselves into into a miserable, greedy, unjust world. We lack contentment. We have damaged relationships, poor rest. We harm and destroy ourselves, all for something that is hevel, that is smoke. Something that, that one wrong investment, one scam, one legal dispute, one fire, one burglary can destroy in an instant. Something that, that under the sun might seem like a, like a good and great thing, but eternally speaking, means almost nothing. We don't bring it into the world. We can't take it with us. So why does it mean so much while we're here? Paul in, in 1 Timothy 6, he puts it like this. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into which, into, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Ecclesiastes 5 and 6, they highlight some of those griefs. And in verse 17 is a summary of the life that results from wholeheartedly chasing after a love of money. It's a life of darkness, frustration, affliction, and anger. The teacher is clear. A love for money, the thing probably most of the world believes is the answer or an answer to most of life's problems, is a dangerous, addictive thing. And like all addictions, it leaves us empty and miserable. A love of money will never allow you to enjoy your life. And yet, in the affluent world that we live in, it is an incredibly big temptation for all of us. The teacher, he's shown us an extreme example of where a love for money can lead. You might not recognize much of yourself in in some of the more extreme aspects of of what he said there. But I wonder, do you see something of yourself in this, this description of the lover of money? 
Are you content with what you have? Do you rest easy? Or do you worry about money? Do you always seem to be chasing after more to support your lifestyle? Are you generous? Are you as generous as you could be? Is your attitude towards wealth actually hurting you and those around you? The teacher has given us this this stark example to show where a love of money may eventually lead us. Well, what's the answer? You may have noticed in verses 8 to 17, there is not a single mention of God. The teacher has shown those of us tempted to put money first in our lives what money as our God leads to. And we've seen it's nothing good. In verses 18 to 20 and on into chapter 6, he now brings God into his rightful place and shows how when money falls into its rightful place, we followers of God can find enjoyment rather than misery. First off, in in verse 18, he reminds us that we can enjoy the money we earn because it's not ours to cling to. It is what God has given to us. Verses 19 and 20, they add to this. When we recognize that that everything we receive from, from each moment we are allowed to continue to exist to the very pennies in our pocket, all is a gift from God and not ours to desperately hold on to. We can relax and find contentment in our loving God who blesses us constantly, sometimes with wealth and sometimes by withholding it. We can enjoy our lives because we know God is in control. We know that one day soon he will restore perfect justice to this world. We can be satisfied with what we have, whether much or little, because it is what our perfect God has given to us for his good purposes. We can enjoy our relationships because we know people matter to God, and so we think of them more highly than we think of our bank balance. And we can rest easy, knowing that just as God looks after the flowers of the field and the birds of the air, he will look after us his created beings, made in his image and now in Christ, adopted into his family. Chapter six, which I've said I'm dealing with in a few lines. The teacher just restates a lot of what he's just said. He's really now comparing the two lives, the God first life and the money first life and appealing to the people of God to keep their eyes on him. In verses 1 to 6, he's really stating that even if you have all the money in the world without God giving you the ability to enjoy it, by putting him first, by resting easy in it, what's the point? You'd be better off having never been born, having never breathed, than to live 2,000 years with all of, of Jeff Bezos' $150 billion that he has but not be able to enjoy it. That right relationship with God is key. Verses seven to nine, they describe again this, the, the insatiable appetite 
that wealth gives us to get more and more, to try and fill that gap in our lives that can only be filled by being in relationship with God with all sorts of other things. In verse 10, God is described as being stronger than man or his desires, giving up on the gift giver and focusing our lives instead on the gift is never going to end well for us, no matter how doggedly we pursue it. Metzis, when he painted the moneylender and his wife, he knew this. Um, can we stick that the painting up again one more time? There's a there's a lot of stuff uh, there's a lot of stuff going on in this painting um, that we don't have time to go into. But I want to draw your attention to one other small thing. You may not be able to see it on the screen, but in the foreground, right at the front, between the money lender and his wife, there is a little mirror. Um, and in that mirror, there is a man. He's clinging to a window frame. The window frame is shaped like a cross. And that man is the artist. It's Quentin Metzis. What Metzis is saying was in a world where, where everyone seemed to be taking their eyes off God and focusing them on wealth and prosperity, he was going to look to and cling to the cross. When our eyes are on money, no matter what the world promises us, our, eye, our lives will, will likely be increasingly miserable. But when our eyes are on God, we can enjoy life. Because we know no matter the circumstances, no matter the troubles or the trials we face, our lives are in his hands. And there is no better place for them to be. If you want to enjoy money, if you want to enjoy life, cling to the cross. And the reality of what that means for you here and into eternity.